Good morning. I got up uh, on time this morning. I went to bed at uh, 10.30. That's after I changed the clock. So it was actually 9.30 until 2 p.m. when it became 3 p.m. Or 3 a.m., I should say. So anyway, enough of that. It's good to see you this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians, called it selfie because the struggle is always with the self, and that is a huge issue in this letter. Uh, it's been said that <clears throat> leaders have their toughest job in leading themselves. There's, there's no tougher follower than yourself. These kinds of things come to mind when, uh, when we read and spend time in 1 Corinthians because we realize uh, that it always comes down to surrender, to uh, submission of the self unto the Lord. And that's certainly the issue here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Chapters 1 through 4 have been focused on the cross. And uh, let's look at chapter 4, starting at verse 5. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? Who do you have, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When, we're, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and still are like the scum of the world, 
the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. I'll stop there. Um, There's an old saying, you can't really understand another person's experience until you've walked a mile in their shoes. I tried to find out where that came from. The closest I got was uh, pinpointing an expression in the book To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. She wrote, you never really know a man until you understand things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. People tried to do that literally. I remember a few years ago, Tyra Banks had herself cosmetically transformed from a supermodel into an extremely overweight woman to find out how people would respond to her to experience what that is like. She had a television show and they discreetly filmed everything that was going on. She came back and professed it really changed the way she saw the world, saw herself, the way she treated other people. Even before that, in 1959, John Howard Griffin changed his pigment under the care of a dermatologist. I won't go into all the technical stuff. I know he spent, I mean, he, they changed his pigment for periodically for a while through injections, and then he spent a lot of time in, under a sunlamp, like 15 hours a day, and he actually changed his pigment. He chronicled it in a book titled Black Like Me. It became a movie. I've heard of high school students given the experience of being the parent of a newborn. I guess they sign up to take a a baby doll around for an entire week. They have a strict schedule and they have to treat that doll as a newborn. And even though it's a long way from an actual newborn, it's probably a a good experience to kind of realize what kind of obligations, responsibilities, and duties come with a newborn baby. Paul gives us a walk in his shoes. Let's take another look at it. Hope you can see that. Next time I'll make it bigger. I tried to bring out a few things. Some of you don't realize that um, I taught Greek for years 
as an associate professor at a graduate school. And uh, some of these uh, words are hard to translate. And I just tried to get a feel for it. Verse 9, Paul says, We are paraded as criminals to die for earthly and heavenly entertainment. That's kind of the contrast between angels and humans. We're a spectacle, he says. But then he contrasts that, which we read in verse 8. You have it all. You are rich, self-indulgent. They're, they're satisfied. They're sated. They just can't hardly eat anymore. There's no more room. They just have it all. And they're self-governing. They need no one's help. They're monarchs, tyrants, if you will. In verse 10, he says, but in contrast, we're fools, we're feeble, we're undistinguished, but you are smart and vibrant and distinguished. In other words, you're eye-catching. We're the kind of people that you pass by or avoid And then he talks about how unsuccessful they are. We're ever hungry and thirsty. You know, it's like our vocation, our job doesn't put enough food on the table or in the refrigerator. We're shabbily dressed. We can't afford to be dressed like you. We're treated gruffly. In fact, the word that Paul uses there has been used in other contexts by other writers of the day of masters who buffet or beat their slaves. We're treated gruffly as vagrants. Move on. You're not wanted here. They're manual laborers, like powerless slaves. You might even view them as cowering. We return blessings for insults. We endure relentless abuse. We graciously conciliate in response to offensive lies. And in the estimation of all, we've become filthy scrapings of pots and sandals, which are the very lit graphic images. The first one is of scraping that gunk from a pot, a circular scraping, and the other is to scrape off, as you would from a sandal, something on the bottom. These are the scrapings on the floor that are swept out and unwanted. There are three things I want us to see here in this comparison. The first is that what you have here is a contrast of two competing views of Christians and Christianity. Two competing views of Christians and Christianity. The second thing I want us to appreciate is that there are different results from these two views, competing views of Christianity. One leaves you sated, rich, a ruler, autonomous. 
The other leaves you as one viewed as unsuccessful, unworthy, unwanted. Some Corinthians, too many, not all, have bought into this version of Christianity, of triumphal Christianity, the kind of Christianity that can hold its own in any arena. You could call it the prosperity gospel. The gospel promotes your prosperity, your rule, your satisfaction, your reign. I don't know where it came from. It may be that there were visiting Christian teachers that planted these ideas after Paul left. It may be that they were, so to speak, acquired by baptizing their Christian faith into the culture. Because this was very much the culture of that day. Not that really different from our own culture. And a third thing, and this is the real shocker to me. It's not shocking that, the, that Paul and the apostles, in other words, the leaders of earliest Christianity, it's not shocking that this is their profile on the left side of what I've projected in verse 9, half a 10, 11, 12, and 13. That's not the shocker. The shocker is that the Corinthians think they're failures. That's the shocker. That this, this brand, this category, this profile of Christianity is a failing Christianity, is a Christianity that should be rejected and not embraced. That's the shocker. If we walked a mile in Paul's sandals, we might experience bouts of discouragement if that was our profile. Just, I mean, if, uh, if you look at it this way, did Paul ever think he was a failure? Because by society's standards, by the cultural standards of the day, even some of the Corinthians, uh, or in comparison with a, what I could conveniently call more of a prosperity gospel, it does cause me to wonder, did Paul have bouts of discouragement where he wondered if he was doing it right? 
Haven't you ever had occasions in your life where you stepped out in faith, you stepped out to really serve the Lord? It might be in your own home, in a marriage, a scuffle, a disagreement, and it didn't seem to work out the way you expected it. To put it simply, you obeyed God and the results didn't bring blessing. Kind of like Joseph when he fled Potiphar's wife. It landed him in jail. And I think, wow, you should be a hero of the faith. You did exactly what we ought to do. You're an example to us all. And serving the Lord ended you up in jail. And I just wonder sometimes if, uh, if doing it God's way, when it doesn't bring blessings, if it doesn't somehow cause us to question, am I doing this right? Is this the way the gospel works? Or am I in the wrong? Is God punishing me? Is he trying to say, you're doing it wrong when I thought I was doing it right? I hope maybe you can tap into some moment in your experience. But what I want us to appreciate is this profile, this litany of descriptions of Paul and the apostles and the way they conduct themselves is rejected by society as viewed as a failure. These are not success stories. These are not the ideals of Roman society where when persecuted, you endure. When abused, you respond with kindness. What what kind of a wuss are you? You're weak. You're pitiful. And I think the Corinthians bought into that. Is weak? Is Paul weak? Is he pitiful? He looks like a failure, but he isn't. The other shocker is that the apostles do this out of strength. They do it because of the cross. It's the way of the cross. And it's not weakness, it's strength. I think that's how Paul sustained himself. He kept his eyes on the cross. And I think this is a very, very powerful and important Lesson to learn. You can be right in the very heart of God's will and purpose and look like this. Look like Paul. Look like the apostles. Look like things the world rejects. 
Not because you're weak, but because you're strong. You may be viewed as weak, but you know it's because you're acting out of the grace and love and goodness and kindness of God. Let's keep looking at the cross. This is Paul's punchline that we read here. His punchline. From chapter 1, starting in verse 9, all the way to this point, because beginning in the next chapter, chapter 5, Paul takes up a series of questions, and he devotes all of his, the rest of the letter to answering those specific questions. But to get them into a position where they're going to be open to the answers, he says, you've got to get your eyes on the cross. And these first four chapters have, have been all about that. Don't lose sight of the cross. Don't lose sight of what the Messiah, the Lord, these are the two titles, descriptors that Paul uses of Jesus. Lord, Master, King, and Messiah. He's not out of the will of God. He didn't stray and lose his way when he came from heaven. He went straight to the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Have this mind, have this attitude, have this disposition in you, Paul says, which was also in Jesus Christ. Who being God, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, submitting himself to death, even... Death on a cross, the most humiliated, demeaning, dehumanizing expression of destruction and victory in the hands of those who crucify. This is a cross-centered critique of boasting in human persons. And here's the amazing thing, because it is shocking to our way of life to look at the, the characterization of their experience in living for Jesus Christ for taking up the cross and following him. And it causes us to think, well, you're in a special category. You're Paul. You're speaking of apostles. But it's not exclusive. In verse 16, Paul appeals to them, In fact, he says, you have countless guides. Literally, 10,000 guides, but you don't have many fathers. I'm your spiritual father. That is an appeal to the special place of a father in the life of a family, in the life of society. And Paul says, listen to me as your father. I'm not just a guide. Imitate me. 
follow my way of life. In other words, this isn't just for Paul, and it isn't just for apostles. It's for each of us. In fact, Jesus himself said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. We've got to keep looking at the cross. The cross can crisscross the way we see ourselves and the way we see others and the way we see success. That's the thrust of this passage. The cross crisscrosses the way we see ourselves. If we see ourselves in the light of the cross, we see ourselves as loved beyond measure. A God who goes to the furthest extent that is divinely and humanly possible in submitting himself to the human outrage and violence of the cross to say, I love you. It it helps us grasp the, the dimension of God's grace. If grace is generosity, if it's unmerited favor, and it is, if it's If grace is something that you can't buy, you can't afford, you can't earn, you cannot merit it. And then with that in mind, when you look at the dimension of God's grace that he, even as Paul prayed, and as we sang, the creator, the majesty of the creator in fulfillment of scripture sends his Messiah, but his Messiah does not come with irresistible power. He comes meekly and humbly with a message. He brings the kingdom, the very reign of God that we might submit to that grace and love and power that we might voluntarily witness the beauty and the majesty of who God is and what he is doing, what his kingdom, what his heart, what he is all about. And it's demonstrated on the cross, which not only atones for our sins, but shows us the grace and love of God in a way that can never pale or be diminished. But just as we should see ourselves, not through the eyes of society or others, but through the eyes of God, demonstrated on the cross, we should see others that way. And realize that when Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Listen to that. Enemies, hate, curse, mistreat, 
answered with love, blessing, prayer, doing good. That's the way of the cross. That means that's the way of winning others to the cross. When Paul said in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to everyone except those who are being saved. It's the power of God. Yes, it's the power to make us right through what Jesus accomplished in his atoning, sacrificial work on the cross. But it's also another power. It's God's kind of love, a love that is not limited, diminished, restricted, or shrunk by any other kind of behavior, not hate, not mistreatment, not persecution. If it falls before that kind of love, it is not the kind of love to save you or me. And it's certainly a cross that crisscrosses the way we see success. I was reminded this week, uh, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the March to Selma. The civil rights movement is kind of uh, iconically represented in that experience. It drew me back to a book by Jim McClendon in which he retells the account of Clarence Jordan in the early 1950s, a time before anyone knew what civil rights were all about. Clarence Jordan, a man from a prominent Southern family with a PhD in New Testament Greek from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in an advanced degree. Some said also another PhD, but I do know it was an advanced degree in art agriculture. Out of his conviction... forged by the gospel, by the cross of Jesus Christ, he began a farm called Koinonia Farm near Americus, Georgia. It was really a foolish and dangerous thing to do given the climate, the controversy over race. And of course, the farm, as a result, was facing reprisals and trouble even the Ku Klux Klan. Clarence, winter was coming. It was an interracial farm. They had blacks and whites. Clarence, white, southern, prominent family, approaches his brother, his brother Robert, who later became state senator and justice of the Georgia Supreme Court to ask him if he could represent legally the Koinonia farm. 
They were having trouble getting LP gas delivered for heating during the winter, even though it was against the law not to deliver the gas. But because of the interracial nature of what they were doing, they wouldn't deliver gas in winter. Clarence thought just a call from Robert, his brother, could go a long way to helping them. Just a phone call. Here's the conversation as reported by Jim McClendon. Clarence said to Robert in reply to his request for a phone call, I can't do that. You know my political aspirations. Why, if I represented you, I might lose my job, my house, everything I've got. We might lose everything too, Bob. It's different for you. Why is it different? I remember it seems to me that you and I joined the church on the same Sunday as boys. I expect When we came forward, the preacher asked me about the same question he did you. He asked me, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes. What did you say? I follow Clarence. I follow Jesus up to a point. Could that point by any chance be the cross? That's right, I follow Jesus to the cross, but not on the cross. I'm not getting myself crucified. Then I don't believe you're a disciple. You're an admirer of Jesus, but not a disciple of his. I think you ought to go back to church the church you belong to, and tell them you're an admirer, not a disciple. Well now, if everyone who felt like I do did that, we wouldn't have a church, would we? The question, Clarence said, is, do you have a church? What about us? Are we followers or admirers of Jesus? Is our church a community of disciples or a fan club? When we take Jesus as Lord and Savior, what do we mean by it? What do we mean by discipleship? What do we mean by being church, the church of Jesus? When I think of these questions, it scares me. It always has. I'll bet it scares you too. What would it mean? I just want to challenge you right where you're at. 
We're middle-class Americans, basically in Tulare County. But we can still take up our cross in our home. We could get self out of the way and just think what that would do in our homes as husbands or wives, parents. We could take up that cross at work. We can even take it up at church. We can take it up when we drive. We can take it up when we're frustrated by long lines and difficulties. We could take it up and it could change our attitude in in the things that we face each and every day. We could take up our cross and be a disciple right where we're at. We don't have to run into the future. We don't have to go halfway around the world. We can change the present right now. And let God do the leading. Let him do the leading. And I'll bet, and I just base this on my own peace and experience, when you just take up your cross daily right where you're at, the future takes care of itself. In fact, the way I take up my cross in the present changes that future that frightens me. It prepares me for that future. And it causes me to realize the power. That's what we want, isn't it? We want the reality of the living God in our lives. Keep your eyes on the cross. Will you stand with me? I can't promise you that if you give your life to Jesus Christ today, everything's going to be sweet and peachy keen. But it'll be real. And there'll be meaning in your life that you won't find anywhere else in any other pursuit. And you'll find joy and peace and hope If you need to receive Jesus Christ, accept him as your Lord and Savior this morning. I'm going to be down here along with some others. I'm going to close us in prayer. And after we say amen, if if you want to receive Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and receive him here in humility, in acknowledgement of who he is. But we'll be here also for prayer. And if you need to pray in some way before the Lord, and you'd like to pray with us, we invite you to come. Let me close this in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your sufficiency and fullness, your greatness expressed in grace, in such humility and love. We know it in our hearts. We've received it freely. We thank you and praise you for it for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.